Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Medea Ocher, the managing editor at LARB, and today we have a very special episode. We're featuring a conversation with the author of the latest pick for the LARB Book Club. His name is Alain Mabanku. He's the author of Black Moses, as well as many other books, but we will be discussing Black Moses with him today. Joining me for this conversation is LARB executive editor Boris Jaluk and senior editor Lisa Teasley. The next voice you'll hear will be Boris introducing Alain. Enjoy the conversation. Hello, LARB Book Club members near and far. I'm Boris Draluk, executive editor of the LA Review of Books. And it's my pleasure to introduce Medea Ocher, our brilliant managing editor, co-host of the LARB Radio Hour, and mastermind behind the LARB Quarterly Journal, as well as the equally brilliant Lisa Teasley, LARB's senior fiction editor and the author of Glow in the Dark, Dive, and Heat Signature. Today, we are joined by Alain Mabonku, one of the most exciting and widely admired voices in contemporary Francophone literature. He hails from the Republic of the Congo, Congo Brazzaville. After living and working in France for over a decade, he moved to the United States in the early 2000s, and he is currently a professor of Francophone literature at UCLA, making him the third UCLA associated person on this current call <laughs> uh, with, with me and with Lisa. Alain's inventive, bitterly funny novels, which somehow managed to be both kaleidoscopic and claustrophobic, include Broken Glass, my personal favorite, African Psycho, and the book we're discussing today, translated into English by Helen Stevenson as Black Moses. The tale of an orphan boy's rise, if we can call it that in fall, is dedicated to all those wanderers of the Côte Sauvage, the beach in Alain's native city, Pointe Noire, who, Alain writes, told me pieces of their life story. Alain, thank you very much for taking part in our club. And I'll let uh, Dea begin uh, with a question. Thank you. Hi, Alain. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank Um, you. so, uh, So just for listeners who might or and readers who might not be familiar with the Congo and the history that you sort of dive into in the novel, um, will you tell us a little bit about when the story takes place and, and where? The story of Black Moses is set in the 70s under what we can call a Marxist-Leninist regime. So I was a kid back then. The Congo just escaped from the colonization from France. And now we were like embracing a kind of communist regime. So I wanted just to give a picture of that uh, decade, which was like reshaping the face of uh, the African continent. In the 70s, at the time, we are facing dictatorship because French people are not governing the African nations. And then we have dictator in Congo, in a democratic Congo called then Zaire or Gabon, all over the uh, African countries were facing this kind of dictatorship. So it's just uh, a tale of a kid during this communist era and during the dictatorship of the 70s. Well, I was curious to know Mm. how you came to such 
perfect balance between keeping the story going, the momentum of the story, and the point of view of Moses with what the reader needed to know about what was going on, the history and the politics of of the country at the time. And I'm wondering what that process was like in terms of the writing and the editing. How did you strike that balance? Oh, yeah, the process was a little bit uh, easy for me because I was at the same time uh, telling the story of my own life, of what I was seeing around me. If you have the characters like uh, Mama Fiat Sanson, she did exist. I met him. I was. I would go to her house like the other boys over there. She was a, a huge, like she had a huge influence on us as a kid, and she was a, what we call now prostitute. But for us, she was our mama. So I was just trying to refresh my memories, thinking about that uh, strange woman. Who were like who was uh, not well considered in the neighborhood, but at the same time who was helping little kid here and there. So I tried to explain how the history of Congo or the history of the world was like falling apart on her head. She was trying to save us from the communists. She was trying to save us from the dictatorship, and maybe in the 70s, we can say that it was the decade in which women were trying to like uh, uh, take back their freedom, take back their power. That's, that's a brilliant answer, Alain, and uh, she is one of the most touching characters in the book. What impressed me most is how much space you give her to tell her own story. And I think that that's a characteristic of, of, of your fiction. You, you give the floor to a variety of characters who usually are not given the floor in, in fiction uh, to, to, to uh, narrate their own histories. Um, and this was a conscious decision on your part, I, I can tell from the dedication itself, to give these, these people who can only share their lives in snippets uh, uh, the room to do so. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because at the same time, it was a strange situation. On one side, we would be like devoted to go to the communist regime. But in the other side, we still have like to go to church. But when you are a communist, the church is not like worth it. You not go to the church if you are reading books from Karl Marx, from Lenin, and so on and so on, where they are teaching you that... uh, religion is your enemy. But at the same time, you can see in the book that uh, uh, God saved those kids by believing to in Papa Mupelo, who was the priest in this kind of uh, orphan, by believing to the priest, the kids were trying, the kids were trying to uh, earn their freedom and trying to escape again from the dictatorship in the Congo. And there's a lot of irony in, in this situation in the orphanage mm. where the mm-hmm. priest is, is actually uh, sharing uh, a, more of the native uh, culture 
with the students, treating them as as fully-fledged humans without necessarily indoctrinating them. And then the director of the orphanage is named God's Gift. But it, it was a, a, a strange contrast, you know. At one side, you have the director whose name is Dieudonné uh, in French, the God Gift, but he's very severe. He's, uh, we were like frightened when we would listen to her, his voice. We were like uh, shaking. We would like hide ourselves somewhere because that director was very, 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 he was threatening us. He was beating people back then. So once the priest uh, comes, we are like, oh, thank God, the priest, Papa Mopelo, which is the name is uh, uh, God Gift, is there. So we're not going to be beaten by the director. So did you have a, a Papa Nupelo when you were yeah. little? Yes, I think that we were growing with uh, the religion at the same time and the politics. Mm. But the politics was becoming more and more important because the president decided that uh, even before your birth, you are considered like a member of party. So all the, the babies were considered like the future of the unique party in the Congo, which is called Parti Congolais du Travail, the Congolese party of labor. So everybody, even if you are, you are one more for 70 years, you are a member of the party. Mainly the young people are considered like those who are gonna like uh, perpetuate the communist regime. So, uh, since uh, until now, I can feel how we were like uh, brainwashed, how we were we were treated, how we were like uh, raised like dogs. Yeah, you have like to stay still. You don't have to move. You you have to pay tribute to the country, to the flag. You don't have to. Uh, look in the eyes your director and so on and so on it was it was strange but when you go to the church then you have a kind of peace you can talk to god you can now explain how your life is very difficult because of what you are witnessing around you were the twins actual characters in your life <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, yes. That that's strange to see that. Uh, usually, even when I'm creating characters, I'm not that creating them. I'm just picking them here and there in my own life. My cousins are twins. They're still alive. So, not to say that uh, those twins in the book are my cousins, but I use the lives of my cousins in order to uh, like uh, depict very well the, the the twins in Black Moses, and uh, it's very strange to be uh, twins in Congo because you are considered like someone who have. Uh, who has superpowers, you can like uh, 
You cannot decide that it's going to rain and it's going to rain. You can uh, decide that it's going to be sunny and it's going to be sunny. And if you are like abused by someone as a twin, you can like uh, pick what kind of illness you're going to give to that person who is bothering you. So I was living with the fear that my own cousins going to give me a kind of illness in which I won't be able to recover. <laughs> wow, yes. So that's why you, you're going to see in a lot of my books, I have uh, twins here and there because it's still a mystery in Africa. We don't understand why twins, why you didn't come by yourself. You need help, so you brought someone else. And think about if you if you are not twins, but you are three kids at the same time, that's going to be a strange history to uh, explain. It's fascinating how you layer the the common superstitions and the and the traditional culture with the overlay of the Marxism, Leninism, along mm-hmm. with the religion. Everything here sits one on top of the other, and yet we yeah. have a very human story passing yeah. through it of, of Black Moses. I wanted to ask, both Medea and I are products of the former Soviet Union, and for me especially, <laughs> reading about the Marxism-Leninism, uh, yeah. In in Congo Brazzaville, some of the uh, elements were very familiar. That kind of mm-hmm. indoctrination, and mm-hmm. also how difficult it is to shake, to to get rid of uh, the weight of that kind of indoctrination. I know that the book was inspired by your return to yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, how much has changed? What did you see there when you returned there? What was the same, and what had changed uh, in the time that you had been away? When I went back over there, I saw that everything uh, has changed. I didn't recognize a lot of uh, locations over there, but I can, I could feel something. I could like uh, felt something around in the air, like uh, the spirits. That was very important when I went to the to the, the to the sea to see like La Côte Sauvage, as uh, we used to to call it over there. I was like uh, thinking about uh, those people who disappear by to say black sheep, bringing them to, to America to become like slaves. That's why it's very important for me to set that story in Luango, because Luango was the main location where people would come and uh, capture the slave to take them uh, far, far away, and maybe here in the United States of America. So Black Moses is at the same time the story of my own like uh, ancestor, of my own beliefs, but at the same time the story of today because it explains it explains how uh, a lot of kids live in the streets a lot of kids are suffering still right now even if the country is rich we have the gas we have everything over there but it belongs to the president you bring so much together in this book as as you just said mm. part of part of the book is this the history of slavery mm as well as the history of colonialism. And then yeah. on top of that is the new socialist regime. Yeah. 
and something that seems really difficult for me is to present these things from the eyes of a child, right? So <laughs> it, it, because they're such complicated things, they're such complicated mm-hmm. histories. And I wonder how, you, why you decided to to talk about these things through through the eyes of a of a child who, you know, there's only so much that they can understand about what's. So there's only so much we can understand as adults, frankly. But yeah, um, <laughs> but you know, to to go into such complicated histories and such complicated stories mm. with with children as our guides. Oh yes, what we have to know about the seventies is even under that Marxist Leninist regime, we were treated like adults. So mm. we would like learn stuff which were like above our head, above our brain. We were brainwashed, like I was saying. So we would like read Karl Marx, Lenin. We would read philosophy, whereas we are like 10 or 11. Oh we don't God. understand what we are reading in France, but the professor or the, the teacher would say that just learn one day you're going to thank me for giving you that today. So we would like learn uh, big, uh, long paragraphs from Karl Marx, long paragraph from communist philosophy, and we would like uh, 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 read uh, in public like it's a poem. Mm-hmm. So I can say that back then, I knew I was learning the history of the Congo, but I, I wasn't aware about what I was learning back then. For me, it was just, it was just a game. Mm. So once I became uh, a writer, then I began like to say that, oh, okay, if I learned that, it was because they wanted me to be like a communist. They didn't want me to understand what the other philosophers were, were thinking. We didn't learn like philosophers like... Uh, Aristotle, like Montesquieu, like uh, Tocqueville, because we were told that it was Western civilization and it's not good. If you have to read something for Western civilization, you have to go to Russia. You have to read like Lenin. You have to read uh, Boris Pasternak. You have to read uh, Tolstoy. You have to read the real writers. Suddenly, the writers, the real, were all Russians. So, well, I have to take offense at that, but uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, uh, no I, I think I think that that brings up a very interesting point, which is how how did you then expand your horizons? When did you begin to to learn about the broader world of of, of writing, of of philosophy? And because, of course, all of these things do work their way into your novels. There are so yeah. many literary allusions and so many uh, interesting asides into into philosophy and literature. And I wonder yeah. how you began to expand. Your, your horizons? I, I was a little bit lucky because my father, Papa Roger, as I called him, I called him in my, my book, Tomorrow I Will Be 20, Papa Roger was working in the hotel. It was a French hotel called Victory Palace. So he was a receptionist over there in the front desk. So he would like receive all the clients coming to sleep in the hotel. He would receive European. And when Europeans come to Africa, usually they're gonna go to the sun 
They want to read, so they would bring a lot of books. And before going back to Europe, they don't want to go back with those books. So they would like uh, abandon the books close to my father, and my father would bring the book home. And then when he's not there, I would try to read whatever I can read. So for a while, I became like a reader behind my father because my father didn't know that I was reading his books. He told me, don't touch my book because I'm going to read it once I'm retired. So don't touch it or the way you're going to destroy my book. So <laughs> I would like, yes, I would like take care of uh, the situation. I have to know which book is above because when I'm going to read it, I'm not going to put it aside. Otherwise, my father is going to discover that I'm trying to touch the books. So I need like to have in my, in my head the picture how the book are uh, arranged so that once I, I'm done, I can put back the book in the same place so that my father wouldn't see that uh, I was reading the book. So I read uh, comics. I read, uh, what can I say, a police novel, because I read a lot of French poets like Victor Hugo, Paul Verlaine, and American literature, because one day I found a little book. It was very, very small, and with uh, a kind of a kid and an old man on the cover. It was the old man and the sea from Ernest Hemingway. So I would read that book every day, every day, because I thought that it was written for kids. Mm. But I was reading one of the greatest writers in the world. And I knew that by reading uh, like uh, The Old Man and the Sea, which the name is in French word, Le Vieil Homme et la Mer, I would read all Hemingway and try to get inside American literature. That's why I read uh, uh, all the adventure from Huckleberry, you know? We had that in, the, in our uh, bookshelves over there in the, in the hotel. So it was a good and nice situation for me because I was becoming a writer just behind my father. And he didn't knew that. And he died without uh, seeing me becoming a writer, mm. neither my mother. I think that would be a, a lovely title for a memoir, a writer behind my father. <laughs> yes, that would be beautiful. I was wondering, what was the process like of inhabiting Moses, or as he's losing his mind, how did you hold on to his spirit? Like, how did you keep the plot going while he's losing his mind? Do you, do you know what I mean? I think that that's uh, the main part of my own creation because I want to play. I like playing with uh, French language. Yes. Because for a while they did play with uh, us using the French language in a bad way. So I like uh, to like uh, put a little more humor on what mm -hmm. I'm writing. So the fact that uh, when someone is getting mad, 
is losing like his mind is becoming uh, a madman mm-hmm. what is what can i find which is like original to explain what is happening in his head so it's a linguistic problem i wanted to go too far maybe to uh, explain to a lot of people that sometimes a madman is a wise man that's what i was taught when i was a little kid when my father would say that you have to respect a homeless you have to respect a madman or a mad woman you have to respect everybody regardless of their condition regardless of what they have in our uh, world don't respect someone just because he has the power don't respect someone just because uh, he has money but respect someone because he's helping you to become a grown man and i kept that even living in los angeles i often like walk on olympic i can walk uh, close uh, to crenshaw because i'm not that far from crenshaw and i often discuss with the homeless with the the wanderer they know who, who i am I, they know that they don't know that i'm a writer but they know that i'm the african friend mm-hmm. and when i get there just the smile that give me the strength yes. to go back home and to write about uh, this kind of encounters and that's very important for me yes that mm-hmm. fully comes through thank you you are listening to the larb radio hour recorded remotely We've been speaking with Ellen Mabanku, author of Black Moses. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have one of our former interns, Yi Wei, on the line with us today. Yi Wei is an emerging writer. She was a truly exceptional intern at the Elder View of Books. And she's pursuing a BA in English Literature and Asian American Studies at Swarthmore College and is passionate about language and immigrant justice. We are passionate about Yi because <laughs> she was just so, so wonderful. And Yi's actually calling in, not just to check in, but to give us a book recommendation. Yi, what book are you going to recommend? Yeah, so I thought about this for a very long time, and I think I'm going to recommend A Cruelty Special to Our Species by Emily Jungman Yoon. Yeah, it's just a beautiful poetry collection. I've been reading it for a couple months. It's divided into several sections, and each section has taken me about a month <laughs> to just kind of digest and absorb. But Emily is just this like incredibly prolific poet. She's Korean-American. She writes about this Korean-American experience, this Asian-American experience, I think, of of being erased of your body and culture and histories, but also within the context of, of these testimonials written in poetry form with Korean comfort women during World War II. So it's this melding of like many different histories that have been erased, both like this Korean-American-ness, but also Korean history that's been erased on a much larger scale of this like violence against women, violence against like race and identity and, and feeling yeah this feeling of like trying to find home and like what does home mean in war and when your home is like being broken apart and your body is being broken apart 
And so it's just beautiful. And like the cover is also super cool. It looks like this embroidery of like two faces that are like coming out of each other. Oh, okay. How did you discover this book? I was looking for poetry and essays and fiction that were telling other people's stories because, mm-hmm. well, like partially because of one of my own projects that I began last summer interviewing Asian American college students on their conceptions of home and belonging. But I think also this larger question of, of what literature is, is this, this place to tell your own story at any point, but also other people's stories and like what it means to kind of uplift and create a platform for other people to, to share themselves um, and to mm-hmm. do that in a way that feels trusting and true to the, to the people that you're sharing and the people that you're sharing with. And also she's the poetry editor at Asian American Writers Workshop. And so I just, I'm just like such a fan of her. I follow her on Twitter. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> the Korean translation came out, I think during quarantine actually. And so that's really exciting also. Okay. And then every time somebody recommends a poetry collection, I ask them what their poetry reading habits are. Okay. So this took you a long time to kind of go through and digest, but with such big sort of questions at stake, probably all poetry collections sort of have that. How did you go about digesting something like this? Like every night before you went to bed? I guess I'll speak specifically to how I digested this book because Mm -hmm. I think the way that I started reading when quarantine started just like completely changed. Just like having less headspace and I think also being overwhelmed by different kinds of emotions and reflections about myself. I read a lot. I think I had to read the testimonial section of her Mm -hmm. collection outside in a park. So I was like crying in a park. Yeah, but normally I would read like one or two poems before going to bed. I also read it with um, Jenny Zhang's poetry collection, Baby Baby First Birthday, because that collection was a little bit more like tongue in cheek and lighthearted. And so I would read like one of one of Emily's poems and then like tear up and then read Jenny's poem about vaginas and like eating out of her mother's vagina. And then I would go to bed. Wow. What an incredible image to end this recommendation on. Okay, you, will you tell us the title again and the author? So the title is A Cruelty Special to Our Species, and it's by Emily Jungmin Yoon. Thank you so much, Yi. Thank you. We've been talking to Yi Wei, and she is a former intern of the LA Real Books. You are listening to the Law Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Alain Mabanku, author of Black Moses. that you like to play with the French language. What is it like for you to write in French? It is, of course, a colonial language of the Congo. What's your relationship to the French language? Oh, actually, I don't have uh, a major problem with the French language. As I often say, it's the French language who has a problem with me because Mm -hmm. they don't know where to put me in that language. Look, I live in United States where I teach French literature and African literature in French. Mm. So in some way, I am expanding the French language throughout the United States of America, throughout a new generation of people who may be interested in speaking or writing in French. But at the same time, I know that the French I'm using in my novel, is like uh, fed by my African languages. Mm. I speak uh, almost 10 African languages. 
Tumlingala, Tumunukutuba, in Kikongo, and so on and so on. And uh, the communist regime gave us the Russian language. So, Yagavaryuparuski. So, I speak a little Russian too, which is very important. which is very important in Los Angeles because when I, I met Russian people, I can earn a beer or a glass of wine just because we're talking in uh, in Russian. But that was uh, back then without social distancing then. But the world has changed. So mm. my relation in with French is not uh, a conflictual rela- uh, relation. I try to write in French with a Congolese accent. Uh-huh. That's very important for me. I need my French with my accent, like I'm speaking here in uh, my broken English, but it's not a French accent, it's a Congolese accent. And I need to keep that in order to be me. If mm-hmm. I try to erase this accent, it's my own death. It's my own erasure. You you have to remain who you are, even if you are opening your mind to the world. That's the lesson I learned about the French. French language, French language doesn't belong only to French people. Mm-hmm. After all, you have uh, more people speaking French outside of France than within France. In France, uh, you have like 70 million of people speaking around the French over there, but throughout the world, it's almost 400 million people speaking French in Africa, in North uh, North America, like uh, in Montreal, in Switzerland, in Belgium, in Senegal, in Madagascar, you see the number of countries speaking French without the permission of France, that is very, very important. It shows it shows that uh, French language is now global, and I don't even know if France is still like uh, managing the language. It yeah. doesn't belong anymore to France. It belongs to whom is speaking the language. Mm. Absolutely. You know, the French have a tradition of of, uh, labeling novels translated from um, American as translated from American, not from English. I I think that, uh, you know, we should adopt that uh, and say that your novels are very much translated from your own brand of French. uh, Yes, Um, Yes, I think that we can uh, brand it like uh, it's a special French. mm -hmm. I would say Congolois. We, mm-hmm. we say, in order to express, because the French people are like Gauls, la Gaule. So the Gaulois are the people from the Gauls. But a Congolese, instead of saying Congolese, we say Congolois, like you are from Congo and France, mm. and then you are inventing another kind of language. And I'm not, uh, I'm just following the steps of uh, major writers like uh, Amadou Kuruma from Ivory Coast, like Leopold Sedar Senghor from Senegal. And at the same time, if you read even in English, writers like Gugi Wachongo, writers like Chinua Achebe, Things Fall Apart, writers like Kamara Lai in uh, The Dark Child, 
writers like uh, who else? Uh, the one who wrote like uh, the drunk cars. I think it was uh, it's it's still uh, it not it it wasn't Chinois Tebe, but the name gonna come back. Those writers from Nigeria, from I don't know, from Kenya, are reinventing English language. They are contributing to the greatness of the English throughout the world. So the lesson we have to give to France is. Uh, to remind the French people that they need to take care of those who are speaking French throughout the world. Because if they don't take care of those people, of those French speakers, those people are going to speak uh, 100% English and write in English So some days. They're going to follow the step of Nabokov. They're going to follow the step of Joseph Conrad, and so on and so on. So the best way is to navigate throughout several languages instead of speaking just one. Mm-hmm. I completely well, agree. Also, I should just say, Vash- Vashuski is очень хороший. Oh, хорошо. If you want, we can <laughs> I think that we're going to be banned uh, from the radio. No. Yeah. Yes, that's right. It's, it's, a, it's a Russian infiltration. Well, oh, both, okay, that's very nice. Since you brought it up, maybe we can talk a little bit about your perspective on, on uh, uh, the United States, on Los Angeles as an immigrant. Um, how, yeah. how do you feel you've been uh, treated as, as a, a person in this country from, uh, from mm-hmm. Africa? And uh, do you feel that there is a movement in one direction or another right now? Are, are things changing? Yeah, terms? I think that uh, I would be the bad example if you have to talk about uh, how someone is living in the United States as an immigrant. Because I came here because the United States of America called me because the University of Michigan o- offered me a a position I taught over the three years, and then the University of California brought me back here in 2006 mm-hmm. when I won the award called the Prix Renaudot, which is one of the biggest awards over there with the Goncourt. And I moved in California. So being a professor at UCLA, being a writer, and... Uh, like uh, discussing with like intellectual American intellectual going in the uh, cultural events put me far from what is happening in the streets. That's why I decided to live close to Crenshaw. That's why I decided to have friends in Inglewood, the major uh, black city in California. That's why I often go to Canton to discuss with people, to understand what is over there. After all, I can be considered like a kind of black who uh, has privileges because he's a professor Mm -hmm. at the university. So far, I didn't face that, I know I have like a kind of discrimination here in university. No, if I say that, it's I'm lying. I'm just begging, trying to be... uh, uh, someone who is like uh, 
dealing with demagoguery. So I don't think that uh, I did face this kind of discrimination. Maybe if you are like an intellectual, if you are a writer, professor, you need to be more careful because the discrimination is going to be very, very invisible. Mm-hmm. You have to be careful because they're going to try to to like frame that kind of discrimination with a nice packet so that you're going to think that it's a kind of compliment, that it's just a discrimination. I am very aware of the situation. I know the chance I have to be in the position I am. That's why I'm devoting my life to testify about uh, those who are suffering. I went to Los Angeles with the Black Lives Matters. I often discuss with them. I often go to the manifestation in order to express my solidarity with those people because they look like me, because we have the same obsession, because we have the same history, at least from Africa, because I have to understand what they are facing now in the present with all the people dying, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so on and so on. The situation politically is very dark in the United States of America. Not only black people are suffering, even white people are suffering. Asian are suffering as well. Uh, All the minority are suffering, but among those minorities, we tend to forget that we have also those white people in the kind of minority living sometime in Inglewood with black people and suffering the same situation. So we need to be aware. We need to like uh, express our solidarity. We need to express our empathy to the people who are suffering. And we need maybe to uh, commit ourselves uh, uh, to those people. I agree. I might be backtracking, but when we started chatting before the recording, you were talking about how happy you are with the translation. And when we were talking about yeah. language a little before this question, I was wondering yeah. if you could talk about what what it was like working with the translator. Oh, it's, Black I, I, yes. I still have the same translator, Ellen Stevenson. She's uh, British. Uh, she lived like um, maybe two decades in France, and now she went back to her country in Great Britain. She's a writer. She writes books for children. She writes novels as well. And um, she is very sensitive. She knows what I'm talking, even if I didn't express it very clearly in French. I am very grateful to have the same voice from Broken Blast uh, to Memoir of a Porcupine, now uh, Black Moses, the death of the comrade president. She she brings something different to me. And Mm -hmm. I like the way that it's uh, white women who are translating a black, African writers. Mm. It means that uh, 
literature may be the only path we have to take in order to save our humankind. Yes. It's very encouraging to hear as a translator. Yeah. 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 I think that one of the, for me, one of the pleasures of your books is that although they're set in in sometimes very closed, very hermetic Mm -hmm. places like bars, or, yeah. uh, or brothels, the mix of cultures, even in these small places, the mix of mm. personal experiences is so rich. And I, I think that uh, what I'm waiting for now is for you perhaps to tackle America as a location. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, you speak so beautifully about your experiences here. I, uh, I, I, I'm yeah. wondering whether you're writing about it. Yeah, I think that the experience is, uh, is paying off, like the, they say. Because uh, I released in France, I think, uh, last month. It's not translated yet. It's not going to be translated. A book called Rumeur d'Amérique, which is like news from America or rumor. I don't know how to translate it. So it's a kind of uh, diary I was writing day in and day out for two years until the beginning of the pandemic. I didn't talk, I didn't write about the pandemic, but the book stopped just the period where the pandemic was coming in the United States and people were thinking that it was just a flu. But so I tried to like write about uh, my experience in the United States, the racial issues in uh, when I was living in Michigan, and also here in the United States, the difference between Santa Monica and the Mid-Wilshire, for instance, or Crenshaw, how the population is divided and so on. It's a diary, I think, that I hope that it's going to be translated in one or two years. It's the beginning, maybe, of uh, my new way of writing when I'm like... Uh, looking around me and trying to depict the America of today. Well, that's very exciting. Yes, Um, it is. (laughs) Well, I want to go back to what you said about literature potentially being one of the ways that humanity saved, because it's such a lovely idea. But it also sounds to me like, you know, you're doing more than that. You're doing more than literature. You go down and you talk to people and you you interact with them and you engage. And that to me seems like a way to save people too. I think it's important, like, uh, if you are aware that you have uh, a little visibility, you need to share it to to everybody. You need to go back uh, uh, to see the people who are in pain, the people who are trying, who are struggling. Mm. And uh, you need to remember that uh, you were in the same situation or you can fall in the same situation. You need to be aware that uh, when uh, one human being is suffering, it's all the humanity who is feeling the pain. That my philosophy I took from my mother, Mama Pauline, when he said that even if when you are like uh, abusing a dog, you are like beating a dog, you think that you're just beating an animal, 
but you are expressing the darkest behavior mm -hmm. of the humankind. And you are trying to express them on a being which is like uh, helpless. So I think that uh, that's why I talk to the youth in Africa. That's why I go to the classes, to the high school when I was in Africa, in Mali, in uh, Congo, in Benin. Uh, like in Benin, it's easy because my book are like taught in, in high school. So usually I go to the high school when they teach broken glass over there to talk with them. And all the Africans, the young Africans, write to me through Twitter, through Instagram, and I have to respond. They won't understand why you don't respond because they need you. Yes, literature is that. You have to satisfy everybody even if you know that it's impossible. But try it. Mm. Right. Mm. I'm wondering now, in your encounters with the youth in, in Europe and in Africa and in yeah. the United States, do you see uh, a future generation of writers? Where do you see uh, writing going? Uh, what, what, what are the next trends in literature that you're most excited about? Oh, I'm very satisfied because uh, this last time we saw the rise of a lot of writers throughout uh, Africa or who are living in the United States uh, and who are Africans. I'm talking about uh, writers like Teju Cole mm -hmm. from Nigeria, Shimamandangoji Adizi from Nigeria too. But uh, you have uh, uh, even in uh, Francophone world, we have uh, Fistom Wanzamujila, who is from Democratic uh, Congo, writing very well. But what is very important is that uh, more and more African writers are emerging from Anglophone world, from America, from England, from uh, I don't know, not only from France. So that's going to be something to watch for the next uh, decade. How are we going to uh, see the writers helping the younger writers to rise? I think that we have this commitment. Since we are already trying to open the doors, we don't need to close them. We, we need to open them widely so the new generation going to come there. And the other fact, which is very encouraging, is that uh, more and more writers are women. Mm -hmm. We talk about Simamandangozi Adishi, but we still have uh, from Cameroon, Leonora Miano, from Senegal, Fatou Diom, and uh, the list goes on and on. So I think that that's good because uh, the appearance of uh, women in African literature written in French, it's not that, that far. They came in the 70s only and mainly in the 80s. And so now I'm very happy because those women 
are writing about everything. Mm. Back then, if you were like a woman, you would be like uh, ordered or requested to write just about polygamy, about uh, family issues. No, a woman can write about whatever she want to write like a, a man. So if a woman wants to write about the snow, about the power of the flower, about the sky, now it's blue, leave her alone. She has to write. She's not there just to write. I know I need to like end the polygamy. Okay, it's a problem from, for everybody, not mm-hmm. only the women. We have to sit together and to talk together, but we, we need also to let the women to be what they want to be. Absolutely. I think we have time for maybe one more question uh, if, if Lisa or, or Dea has. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm wondering what you're working on now. You, you talked about the journal that stops before mm-hmm. the pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. So what's your next project? What are you working on now? What you know? The, the, the next project, I'm uh, between two projects. I want, uh, I'm, I'm trying to write a novel about uh, Africans who are living in the United States and how they interact with African Americans. Yes. Because we still have a lot of uh, silences. We still have a lot of uh, darkness in the middle between African and African American. Yes. So maybe... Uh, maybe the African American seeking to read what is the perception of we have uh, on them yeah. as Africans. So I need to write something like that. That's why I'm taking note. I'm going here and there. I'm, li- I'm discussing with uh, all the people I can discuss, just in order to uh, arrive. Uh, in front of the gate of that huge novel I'm dreaming of. Yeah. If I don't, if I don't jump in that topic, I still have uh, one piece is to write about uh, my city Pointe Noire, but I don't, I don't really know which of two projects will prevail. Yes, I'm looking forward to both. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Alain, for, for opening you. the gates for us in this conversation. I'll say it in, in I'll say merci, I'll say spasiba. <laughs> merci beaucoup. Spasiba. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, Thank we will you keep so you much. Thank you. Thank you. Das Vidania. Das Vidania. Das Vidania. Thank you so much. Au revoir. Au revoir. We've been speaking with Alain Mabanku, author of Black Moses. This was a special episode featuring the LARB Book Club. You can join the LARB Book Club by becoming a member of the Los Angeles Review of Books, a nonprofit literary organization. Become a member on lareviewofbooks.org. Thank you so much for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. 
Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz. 